This episode of Cutting Carbon was recorded on November 2nd, 2021, which took place during COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. And we think when you prejudge outcomes, when you come into it too specific, when this percentage of energy here, that type of percentage there, we think all the tools should be in the toolbox, let the technology find the best path. And so we want to see policies that are technology neutral. I think if you don't go that way, you do run into some barriers. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and joined as always by my co-host, Brian Gutnick. Brian, good day. Good day, Jeff. Good to be here. So, Brian, we're now in our fourth season of the podcast, and for this season, we're really focusing on global policy. We talk a lot about this being a decade of action, and our conversations in this season are really focused on what are the policies needed around the world to really make that decade of action possible. I'm thrilled that today we're joined by Roger Martella. Roger is the Chief Sustainability Officer for General Electric, and we're going to talk about policy in the U.S. today. Roger, good afternoon, good day. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for including me. So, Roger, there's a lot happening in the news today. COP just happened to have started the Conference of Parties, just happened to have started a few days ago, and we're seeing reports from the media. But we know that the Biden administration is is coming out and trying to establish a target of a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And I believe that's by greenhouse gas emissions relative to 2005. And their target is that 50% reduction by 2030. And they're setting more aggressive goals, I believe, 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035. Can you give us a sense of what's the framework that they're thinking about, what policies are in place already, what policies need to be put in place to make those targets viable? Thanks, Jeff. It's, It's a great question and a great recap of where we're at. Since the president announced those targets back in January, The administration's really been focused on kind of what are the options we have to realize these goals and looking at different options. You know, and as we sit here today, we're really on the verge of seeing some of this finalized shortly and have some more certainty on the direction where this is all headed. As you pointed out, the administration's announced an economy-wide objective for 2030 with emission reductions and a 2035 goal for the energy sector. But what we haven't seen is a 2030 goal for the energy sector. There's a general sense that the administration probably wants the energy sector to do more than 50%, probably somewhere in that 70 to 80% range. And we've seen a few options come through so far, and I think some have a higher certainty likelihood for success at this point. I'd call it kind of the carrot and sticks approach that the administration is taking. At this point, it's focusing mostly on carrots. And what I mean by carrots are creating incentives to reduce emissions by incentivizing a clean energy ecosystem. And the administration is really looking at two vehicles. Both of these vehicles are under consideration right now, depending on when you listen to this podcast, it's possible we'll have some finalization with them. But one of them is the president's Build Back Better plan, and the other is an infrastructure initiative. The Build Back Better plan is focused on incentives to grow renewable energy. It's part of something they call the Budget Reconciliation Program, and it's basically a set of tax credits that are intended to grow renewable energy and investments in other clean energy technology. The second part of the tools kind of in their toolbox on policy is the infrastructure proposal and investments. And these are really investments focused on the grid, modernizing the grid and energy ecosystem infrastructure to enable decarbonization. 
And one of the things that's really important about the infrastructure bill is how it's investing in breakthrough technologies, uh, technologies that we're investing in today but are around the corner, things like carbon capture and sequestration, hydrogen, and advanced nuclear. So this is kind of the carrots approach. There's been some other options on the table, including a sticks approach. I think we've moved on from that a bit. And there's some more details to come, such as whether EPA will regulate the energy sector longer term. But right now we're paying attention both to the Build Back Better program and the infrastructure programs, which are these carrots approaches towards pursuing clean energy and uh, climate change controls. Great. Hey, Roger, it's very helpful. Obviously a difficult, uh, maybe political landscape right now. What do you see as some of the enablers, but also maybe potential barriers to establishing that policy framework, finalizing that carrot and stick that you talk about to be able to achieve what are some pretty aggressive targets here? Well, Brian, I'm a little biased on this uh, as GE's chief sustainable officer, but I really think the greatest enabler is the will and the power of corporations in partnership with the government and NGOs to help succeed here. Innovation and technology are the key to success. That's going to be what achieves the emission reductions, what realizes these goals. And, and never before have we seen companies kind of so united to be successful, to not only reduce emissions today, but innovate for the future. And to be fair, it's more than just companies. Our stakeholders are united front with us on this, investors, customers, NGOs, and governments. There's just unparalleled partnership as we talk about COP26, Jeff, as you talked about before, towards all these groups coming together for these shared outcomes. It really creates a force multiplier effect of companies innovating in technology and collaboration with these diverse stakeholders. That's going to be the key enabler. In terms of barriers, there's lots of political dynamics at play regarding both Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill. I, I probably won't get into the details on those. You, you know, People can read about those. But I will say one barrier from a policy perspective is, is we don't want to prejudge the path, the exact path to get to the emission reductions. There is no one-size-fits-all solution for the U.S. or the planet. And this is why we talk about technology-neutral approaches. We should agree on the emission goals, and we talked about the emission goals. GE supports those emission goals. We want to achieve them. But we feel strongly that we should do it in a technology-neutral way. Let the technology find the best path towards realizing those goals. And, and we think when you prejudge outcomes, when you come into it too specific, when this percentage of energy here, that type of percentage there, that leads to setbacks. Sometimes it leads to skepticism because things don't work, frustration and pushback. We think all the tools should be in the toolbox. Let the technology find the best path. And so we want to see policies that are technology neutral. I think if you don't go that way, you do run into some barriers. And so, Roger, I want to follow that thread up. We talk about being technology neutral with specific goals. Obviously, we need to get the market moving kind of that with that carrot incentive. Right today, you know, markets basically don't reward you for making a lower cost green electricity. They just reward you. We should say a lower cost decarbonized electricity. They just reward you for low cost electricity. Do you see a need for us not just to have policy at the federal level, but as we think about market structure and how electricity basically is either dispatched or basically how it's monetized? Do we need to see that from a federal level as well? I think we're seeing different parts of governments, different parts of stakeholders finding different roles to play here. I think at the federal level, what we're seeing evolve is the federal government being very much a facilitator of incentivizing the technologies that we need on the whole to achieve these targets. That includes both kind of driving incentives for different types of energy, renewable energy, cleaner energy, and the grid, but also making sure that the right investments are going into breakthrough technologies like carbon capture, sequestration, hydrogen, and advanced nuclear. So the government's you know playing a role, the federal government, in making sure we're prepared to have all the tools in the toolbox. I think state governments, to some extent, 
our focus kind of how can we within our jurisdictions and even local governments to some extent create the best energy mix that allows us to realize our goals again in a technology neutral way but is sensitive to our local conditions to our local resources our availability of natural gas our availability of renewable energy so i, I think to some extent the state governments are playing this role through clean energy standards of how do we really think about energy markets in a way to achieve decarbonization and at the end of the day you know the folks who are, who are closer to the energy are the ones who probably have the the best understanding of those markets versus kind of a one size fits all solution for the country so i think jeff we are seeing some of those policies play out some of that creativity come in at, at the state level. FERC's looking at it as well, but I, I think we've found that it's great for the federal government to create incentives to invest in the technology, but you want to be implementing these policies tailored to the local conditions. Great. And Roger, you mentioned FERC, right? F-E-R-C. FERC is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Maybe can you can you just spell out for a moment for our listeners kind of what their role here is? FERC is ultimately charged with making sure that the electrons go where they need to go, that we can turn the lights on, that we can run our hospitals, kids can go to school, and uh, that we have a reliable, resilient energy system across all of our network. And so FERC is very much focused on the, the need to decarbonize the energy sector, but at the same time balancing that and promoting resiliency and strength of the sector too. And so looking out for both of those issues simultaneously, understanding the urgency of climate change, but also understanding the urgency of making sure we have access for everybody in an equitable way to reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy. You're listening to Cutting Carbon. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation. So, Roger, maybe transitioning from that, so that trilemma that you just mentioned, that balance of affordable, reliable, sustainable how would you assess the U.S. in terms of kind of the, the power grid vulnerability to outages from extended weather patterns uh, like we saw back in February in Texas, like we've seen in California and other parts of the West with either extreme cold or extreme heat? How would you maybe assess that? And, and maybe more importantly, how do you see policies and policymakers addressing that balance of ensuring we have that system reliability that we need and have learned to come to depend on, but also addressing climate change. Brian, first of all, you know, would completely agree that what we saw in Texas, California, does demonstrate we clearly have vulnerabilities in our grid and want to come back to this and talk about what we can do to modernize the grid at the same time we do decarbonize. I do want to say first and foremost, and I hope we're beyond any dispute on this, we do think it's wrong to say that efforts to address climate change, such as reducing emissions or growing renewables, is the source of these issues. GE is completely committed that we can both decarbonize energy and make the grid more resilient at the same time. These are mutually attainable goals. And it's not only true for the United States, but this is our overarching goal for all the countries where we work, that we want to help countries decarbonize while growing access to reliable, affordable, sustainable energy. We're going to do this together. But to your question in terms of policy, what have we learned and what can we do about the grid? I'd say two things. First of all, what we saw in Texas, what we've seen in California, it just clearly reinforces the need to modernize the grid. I mean, that just shouldn't be debated at this point. I think everybody recognizes that. But the question is, what does that really mean? When you say modernize the grid, that's kind of vague. 
it's more than stringing transmission lines. Stringing transmission lines are important, but we have much bigger challenges for the grid. As you point out, we have weather events. Not only are the weather events more extreme, but they're lasting longer. We have growing demand from the electrification of other sectors, including electric cars. We have more variability in the grid because of renewable energy, which is, which is great, but we have to adjust for the variability. And we have increasing threats of cybersecurity. So the grid is under a number of threats and risks. And this is the, the opportune time to modernize it for the country, both for electricity and for security and reliability. Uh, digital tools can help do this through software by managing the grid in real time and predicting outages and being uh, very nimble to respond. And physical tools can help us manage electrons over farther distances, deal with the variability of, of renewable energy, and help prepare us for uh, more resilience with these weather events and these other stressors. So we're, it's good to see, I think the policies are promoting this. We're seeing a new grid authority out of the Department of Energy that I think is gonna focus on this kind of high level look at how we can modernize the grid and focus on the hard stuff. And, and the second thing I'd say to the grid, I'm gonna echo something I said earlier, is it reinforces the need for us to take a technology neutral approach to decarbonizing the energy sector. Let the technology find the most resilient, the most sustainable, the most affordable path to meet the emissions reductions which we support. And this includes baseload power. It includes power from gas. It includes power from nuclear to make sure that we're promoting the inertia the grid needs for renewables to succeed. And, and I guess, Roger, that's, that's something we've talked about in the past is that inertia, right? You need typically rotating equipment to maintain that inertia to keep the grid frequency locked in 60 hertz here in the U.S., 50 hertz in Europe, and, and 50 and 60 hertz countries overseas. And that becomes more and more challenging as more and more renewables come on the grid. Having that inertia, those rotating pieces of equipment, become critical to maintaining grid reliability as we push willingly and accept, right, we want more and more renewables providing our power. But there is that balance. We have to take that into account. That's right. And I think you said it well. We do want more renewables. We want to grow renewables as aggressively as, as feasible. GE is a renewable energy company, too, and we're proud of our technology. But this goes back to our point. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, and we don't want to overgeneralize that you can do any one thing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere. The grid is much more complicated than that. So you do need this combination of a reliable base load to provide that inertia that you're talking about, Jeff, from you know, gas power, nuclear power, a very resilient grid, and growing renewables at the same time to help decarbonize the energy sector. And Roger, if we think about the two pieces of legislation being considered right now, uh, the president's Build Back Better plan and the infrastructure plan, right, those do effectively account for that technology to incentivize new technology investment, whether it's in carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, other zero carbon fuels, small modular reactors, renewables, that they're really trying to invest in technology to grow this sector, correct? Yeah, you're right. The, both of those take a very holistic approach to decarbonizing the energy sector, which we fully support. And it's very much in line with the way GE thinks of the world here. We want to have the best technology today as soon as possible to decarbonize energy. And that includes renewable energy, includes a more efficient grid. It includes state-of-the-art gas turbines with methane controls. We want to have the, the best technology today to make as much progress as, as we can, as soon as we can. But we all recognize that even that will not be enough. And we have to be investing, you know, looking at the technology that's going to be commercially viable 8, 10, 12, 15 years from now to take us to that next leap forward to really meet these ambitious goals. That includes carbon capture sequestration, hydrogen as a fuel, 
advanced nuclear technology, areas where GE is already investing and showing a lot of leadership. And we appreciate seeing how both of these pieces of legislation, the Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, align so well with that dual approach. Get the best technology out there that exists today as quickly as you can through incentivizing it and invest today for the technology that's going to become the next generation 10, 12, 15 years from now to really get us across the finish line here. So we're working very closely in sync with that philosophy and policy. So, Roger, reflecting on on that and and some of the news that's come out earlier this week with some of the commitments that leaders are talking about, we're hearing the the commitments that these countries are going to update their own, you know, national directives. But what holds leaders accountable? What holds these countries accountable to these pledges? Is there an accountability system? You know, Brian and I in our pre-COP episode talked about, do countries get grades? Is that sufficient? Is it in your thinking, how do we make sure that all these pledges get fulfilled? Because obviously this is such a critical time for us. A number of folks are, are coming out this week and, and reiterating the fact that this is the decade where we either change the trajectory of carbon emissions or forever potentially change the planet as we know it. What, what are your thoughts on, on accountability for pledges? You know, Jeff, it's a really interesting question. I've been an environmental uh, policy lawyer my, my entire career, and international environmental law is built on the notion that you have to enforce commitments against countries, you know, whether it's the United Nations or various treaties or country versus country um, trade agreements, that there's this notion of enforceability. So there's always that. But I'm not particularly worried about that because what we're seeing in the space of climate change, sustainability, environmental social governance, what people call ESG, is that stakeholders are holding everybody accountable. Whether you're a government, whether you're a, a company, stakeholders are going to be watching, paying attention, and holding people accountable. So from the perspective of a country who may make a commitment and maybe isn't putting in all the energy to be successful, I think the people will speak to that. We're seeing a very strong increase in litigation all around the world for citizens to be able to bring litigation against governments to enforce commitments to protect climate change or even take action when there is no commitment. But also from the finance perspective, we're seeing banks increasingly align their investments to their own climate change goals and their own climate change commitments. So countries are going to understand that if they want to be invested in, if they want to be an opportunity for economic growth, following through on their commitments in this space is going to be an increasing criteria by which banks, investors, companies judge them. And to be fair, that's how we're being judged too. It's not just limited to countries, our stakeholders, our employees, our customers, our investors, our banks. They're also looking at companies like GE through a similar lens, making sure that we follow through on our commitments as well. So I think that's the big development here. You know, can you always have you know, one country try to enforce something against another? But I think ultimately the weight of the stakeholders being united around this is going to be what drives everyone towards success. Great. Hey, Roger, are there some near-term milestones that you're particularly tracking here that the U.S. kind of needs to be on pace for from a policy standpoint, either enacting certain, whether it's tax policy or the Build Back Better or the the infrastructure bill, what are the near-term things we got to get right to put us on this trajectory of achieving the aggressive objectives? I think we want to see how Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill are resolved so we know what we're working with. It'll bring some certainty. 
Um, there's been a lot of ideas. I think we're getting a stronger sense of certainty, but you kind of want to know the playing field you have to work with, and then you can decide where to go from there. We're going to want to watch very carefully then with those resources, the tremendous resources that the federal government's investing in these issues, how it's allocated and how it's put into the appropriate places. As, as we've talked about, we want to incentivize clean energy as quickly as possible. But if we're thinking longer term, we want the U.S. to show leadership when it comes to the next generations of technology, advanced nuclear, carbon capture, sequestration, and hydrogen, and make sure that we're showing that leadership and that we're investing in the grid. You know, I appreciate all the questions about the grid. I feel like we have to be thinking about the grid in the same sentence we talk about renewable energy. We have to be doing both of those together. It's encouraging to see resources allocated and draft to the grid, but we'll want to see where that money is actually invested. Is it really invested towards the modernization that we need? The other thing I'd say which we haven't talked about is, is the president has announced a goal, a very important goal, of making sure that those who are most kind of disproportionately impacted or harmed by the impacts of climate change or have been harmed by traditionally the energy sector in the country, that they have a role to play in being part of the solution through environmental justice and other important policies. GE has always had a very strong commitment to equity, to environmental justice. We're proud of our alignment to the sustainable development goals by the United Nations and our legacy of improving the quality of life for people all around the world. So we're looking forward to collaborating with the administration. We already have some, some great initiatives underway in this space, including a $100 million investment in our next engineers program to look at 25 underserved communities around the world and create a pipeline of diverse scientists and engineers and leaders for the future. So that's a huge commitment GE's made. But we, we support a holistic approach to environmental justice, and, and we're going to want to work very closely with these stakeholders in making sure that these goals are realized. Great. Roger, I believe the president also in, in Glasgow announced intentions to really go after methane emissions. Do you maybe want to talk a little bit about that and your reactions and thoughts there of the importance of that? We think it's very important. We, we, we hope it's not super controversial. We think it's a great announcement and great policy, and we hope it's something the industry can get behind. As, as we've spoken about, we need to continue to have baseload power, including very efficient gas power, to be able to be successful with the energy transition and build resiliency at the same time. So when we think about gas power, we think, how do we decarbonize gas turbines at the same time? We, we know if you purchase a gas turbine today, it's a long-term investment. It's a critical investment. It's a necessary investment. But our expectation is you're not going to be emitting greenhouse gases from that gas turbine like you are today, decades down the road. So we want to look at all the avenues to decarbonize gas. The first thing you can do is you can address the upstream emissions through, through methane. So we obviously support uh, the administration on that. We support the global effort, and we're happy to see the U.S. have such global agreement around this, this methane commitment. We, we take that global view as well. The next thing we think about is how can you address the emissions pre-combustion into the turbine? And there we're looking at hydrogen as a fuel. Jeff and Brian, as you know well, I'm sure you've talked about this, you know, our turbines today can run on hydrogen blends. And we have, I think, 8 million hours that have operated on hydrogen blends. And so we're proud of our technology on the pre-combustion side. And on the post-combustion side, we've talked about this a fair amount, but demonstrating carbon capture technology today, building carbon capture hubs that bring together a lot of different opportunities to decarbonize, including direct air capture, industrial uses. So we want to look longer term at how we decarbonize gas technology because it has such an important role to play in the future, gas turbines do, and methane, I think, is a key part of that. 
Well, Roger, I, I think, you know, kind of a tour de force conversation here, thinking about technology, emissions, what are the policies that we need, what's happening literally real time this week as we talk in Glasgow with world leaders gathering there. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, you mentioned real time, which is on my mind as, as I'm getting ready to go there and give a number of presentations. And it's been a very busy year on the U.S. front, on the international policy front, the European Union, the United Kingdom, and other parts of the world. But I also think COP26 is a pivot point. It's a point where we bring some certainty to these issues and where we start to execute more aggressively. So as busy as it's been, my prediction is the next 100 days are going to be busier than the last 100 days, and it's going to continue on that. So I'm super excited about what's to come. A little intimidated sometimes by the pace of it, but we know it's important. We know we can step up and succeed. And I feel a huge sense of pride on behalf of the company, our employees, on how we have been invited into the room uh, so seriously during COP26 by our NGO friends, by our governments that we've worked with as a credible way to show how innovation and technology is going to be part of the table. So there's never been a better time to be able to step up and deliver on our 129-year legacy of making sure we're innovating the technology the world needs to address some of the most pressing sustainability challenges. Roger, I think I think that's the proverbial mic drop. You know, on behalf of Brian, myself, and the entire podcast team, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of what I can imagine is a very busy schedule as you prepare to, to head to Glasgow. Thank you. And uh, on behalf of all GE employees, thank you for the work you do in helping us um, lead the energy transition to a new world. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And for all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening in. If you haven't yet subscribed to Cutting Carbon, please do so. We'd love to hear from you. Please drop us a note about our conversation today with Roger Martella. You can reach us at cutting.carbon at ge.com. For the entire team, this is Jeff Goldmere. You've been listening to Cutting Carbon. Thanks for listening. If you want more information about today's episode, check out the resources available in our show notes. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and this is Cutting Carbon.